Hello, welcome to Healing Out Loud, episode 53, with me, your host, Jackie Shea. You get to make that choice. Yes. You don't get to choose your hereditary risk. You don't get to choose if you get cancer. You don't get a choice in so many things, but you do get to choose what is the story you tell yourself about what happened to you. I believe that if you want to overcome illness and thrive in life, then self-advocacy and hopeful connection through shared experience are necessary ingredients. Healing Out Loud is designed to bring you just that, inspiring, relatable voices that have made it through their darkest days to ultimate triumph by advocating for themselves and engaging with empowering self-care tools. I want you to start healing today. If you like what you hear and want more, there are three ways you can stay in touch with me. Follow me on Instagram at Jackie. that's S-H-E-A-J-A-C-K-I-E. Join my newsletter at JackieShea.com or contact me directly through JackieShea.com and I will see how I can support you and meet your specific needs. If you missed last week's episode on relieving stress, naturally using alphabiotics, be sure to check it out at JackieShea.com slash 52. In just a moment, we are going to meet my guest this week, Kristen Carbone, a fierce advocate for women with breast cancer. After tragically losing her own mother to to metastatic breast cancer when Kristen was just 23 years old, Kristen had an elective double mastectomy, and I'm going to dive into some deep questions with her, like what her grief process was like after losing her mom, why she elected to have the surgery, and why she is so inspired to do what she does with her company brilliantly a brand designed to support women during and after their own experiences with mastectomy. Okay, let's dive in. Today, I have Kristen Carbone with me. Kristen is the founder of Brilliantly, a brand that provides the support women need on their journey toward feeling vital and strong in their mind and body after mastectomy. Motivated by her own personal experience, she is committed to providing solutions that help women deal with long-term physical and emotional needs so they can prosper. Hey, Kristen. Hello. Thanks for having me, Jackie. You know, I feel like the luckiest person in the world that I get to do these these podcasts because I get so much out of every conversation and I walk away so inspired and excited about the new things I learned. So I know that's going to happen with you today. Um, so tell me, tell me about your story, your elective sure. mastectomy. Yes. So I had a preventative mastectomy and reconstruction in 2013. I lost my mom to metastatic breast cancer in 2005 when she was in her late 40s. And at the time, there was no legislation that protected you against insurance discrimination. So she had elected to not get any genetic testing. We had talked about it together and I had also agreed that I didn't want to know if I was a time bomb, that I would just be kind of diligent about screen. And um, then I sort of (laughs) went back to taking care of her and didn't do a lot of thinking about my own health until after I had my first child in 2008 and decided it was time for me to really make sure that I was going to be around for a while. I wanted to avoid my kids having the same experience that I had watching my mother suffer and ultimately die. So I started seeing a preventative oncologist at NYU, who I totally adore and love, and for years was just on kind of a screening where I would go regularly and either have a mammogram or an ultrasound and an MRI. And in 2012, shortly after I turned 30, we found a lump in my left breast And it was in almost exactly the same spot as my mom's primary cancer. And that means nothing medically. Like, that's not how hereditary cancer happens. But I, um, after going through the process of having a biopsy, having all of these screenings over years, spending a ton of money, I just had this moment where I was like, what am I doing? I'm just waiting for them to find cancer. And so I decided... um, in 2012 that I wanted to have the preventative mastectomy and it took me about a year of fighting with my insurance and getting things sort of prepped and scheduled and planned and had mine in April of 2013. And I should also say that I I did undergo genetic testing and I don't have um, the BRCA mutation one or two. And 
not knowing if my mom had had it, it was sort of like an uninformed negative because we don't know if she had it, but I had a lot of other hereditary risk factors that, um, went into my decision. Mm. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about, and I don't know how often, I know you do podcasts a lot and interviews a lot, but I, and I don't know how often this piece comes up, um, or if you're comfortable talking about it, but I really want to talk about the grief uh, process with your mother. Uh, cause I know you were very young. You were like 23 when she passed, right? Yes. So I know you were young. I know she was young. I believe she was 43. I could be wrong. She was 49. Yeah. 49. Actually, I don't talk about that a lot. And it's such a huge factor in who I was then and who I am now. And I'm totally an open book about that kind of thing. And I think... um, Because it must have been huge, right? I know how I've, I see from your website and your work and your post how much your mother was the light of your life and, and you had a great, it seems, it seems like you had a great relationship with her and, um, going through an elective mastectomy and going, being as diligent as you were, I just hear a lot of trauma in that, uh, from going, from watching your mother suffer and, and pass. So I would love to hear about, you know, your process, the darkest days, how you made it through, um, um, and you know how the grief feels today. Yeah, I and that's a really excellent question because it does change and morph over time. It's such a it's an ongoing journey through grief. I don't know that it ever stops. But I, um, you know, when she was diagnosed the first time, they caught it so early, and her prognosis was so good that it sort of became this quick moment in time. She didn't need chemo the first time. Um, she had a lumpectomy and radiation and I was at college. Um, you know, she came and I, I should also say that we had a very typical mother daughter relationship. Um, and now that I have a daughter, I'm watching it sort of unfold and play out before my eyes where I'm like, I've been here where we're, um, <laughs> frustrated with each other, but you know, of course love each other to the ends of the earth. Um, but yeah, I think because it was not a big deal the first time and she came through it so well and never acted scared. She was really brave um, at her time of diagnosis. And because my brother and I were away and in school, she, I, I think now I know as a parent how you would really want to be like, it's not a big deal. I'm going to be fine. You live your life. Like we went through that and everything was good for a little while. And I, she, my parents moved to Baltimore, um, Maryland, shortly after I graduated from college and she was visiting over the holidays, like six months after they moved. And she was coming to my house to get me so we could go to dinner. And I remember opening the door and she said, I've had double vision all day. And and I was like, oh, that's weird. And so we went to dinner and she decided to not have a cocktail with me because she thought maybe she had like a headache or a migraine. or, And it took months to figure out. Um, her brother is an eye doctor. She went to see him. He couldn't see anything wrong with her eye. She finally had a brain scan and there was a tumor in her brain that was pushing down on her optic nerve. And that's what was causing the double vision. And so we kind of started over on this journey and she had brain surgery and we all waited in the waiting room for her. And the doctor came in and after, I don't know, it, it, it was like an eight, 10 hour surgery. It's completely amazing that there are people out there who can do that. And he said to us, um, you know, I thought it was X kind of growth and it looks a little bit atypical. We're going to run the pathology, but I think everything's okay. And I know in that moment, my dad and I both had the same feeling like it's not okay. Um, And so we found out a few weeks later that it was metastatic breast cancer and it was in her brain, obviously, and then in her bones and her liver and her lungs And it was never in her lymph nodes. And at the time, I'm sure they've made lots of progress since the early 2000s in treatment and types of treatment and trials. She became a case study at Johns Hopkins. And we tried so many different things, um, homeopathic things, dietary things, different kind of treatments. And there's really in the time that she was ill, only one day that I really remember her complaining. And I was so scared when she stopped being in that, in that one day of her not being completely brave, I lost it. Um, 
she was in a lot of pain from the bone cancer in her legs. And I, I think I must've been 22 at the time. And I just, I didn't know what to do. I felt so utterly helpless and she became so sick and really her system was so toxic from the cancer and the treatments that she started to not know what year it was or would forget things. And at the end, that last few weeks was so difficult to watch that when she died, there was this enormous relief for me. And I felt so guilty about feeling relieved. It was just so awful to to watch someone get nickel and dimed of their organs and to age so quickly, who was like young and vital and you know, just amazing. And I think, you know, I had nightmares for years about watching her die. Nobody really prepares you for what that looks like or what happens. And it was something I couldn't shake. And my grief kind of manifested in a way, as lots of grief does, it was totally unhealthy. And I just kept myself really busy. I just was like, I'm just going to move through this and it'll be okay. I had a brother, I had a fiance, I had a dad, my my mom's mother, who's still alive, she's 97 now. My mom was the second child that she lost. And so I just felt like, you know what, I have to be okay because there are all of these other people. And in an effort to present as okay, I just powered through years of my life where I never allowed myself to feel anything about it. I didn't cry at her memorial service. Um, you know, I talked to hundreds of people all day and was like, you know what? I have to be a brave face. People have to know I'm going to be okay. And I was so worried about the perception of, of other people that I didn't pause and give myself any time to just fall apart. And, and that's something that has happened periodically in recent years, um, you know, with the birth of my kids where it was just such an acute moment of missing her and wanting her there. And then again with surgery where it was like everyone and I had so much help and I have such a wonderful community of people who support me and love me. And I honestly could, the only thing else I could ask for would be that my mom were here, but it was people who'd never been through that process or never experienced something in the same way. And it was in those moments where I really missed her and allowed myself to be like, I feel super shitty about her not being here and I'm going to let myself feel that way. But it, it took a long time to give myself permission to, I guess, be distraught. Yeah. Grief is such a bitch, huh? I, (laughs) I really, I'm listening to you and I'm like getting all choked up and it's so, it's so, um, thank you so much for, for sharing that. It's, I think it's really important for people to hear about, um, doing grief imperfectly, you know, uh, and just everyone, everyone handles it so differently. And I, and I, what I hear from you is that, you're really like you attack life. You're you go for it. You you stay focused on on ahead, and that kind of has worked in your favor with um, preventative surgery. It sounds like yeah, yeah. I would say definitely. I I'm a really optimistic person, and I think because I perceive myself that way, I always feel like I need I if I'm having a bad day and I say I'm having a bad day or I'm behaving like I'm having a bad day that I'm somehow disappointing everyone else around me, but also myself. And, you know, I think there are these moments where I'm like, okay, my mom is missing this and I should be doing all these things that she couldn't do. And I should, you know, I I've had like the hardest time every year since then she died in November. So right before Thanksgiving and the holidays are just brutal for me. And I, I hate Christmas Mm. and I, you know, I have to try so hard to be like, okay, it's going to be okay. I have kids. They're so excited. We're going to get a tree. We're going to decorate. And I really half-ass it. And I, and I know that I do that. And I, every year try to challenge myself to put in a little bit more effort and to find a little bit more happiness because me sitting around and being sad doesn't, serve anyone well. 
And I can remember fondly how special she made holidays feel for us. And we were a family that had like, it was always a party. It was always the more the merrier. There was so much decorations and cooking and cookie making. And um, my birthday is between Christmas and New Year's. And because I was such a brat about that as a kid, because I didn't want anyone <laughs> to forget, she always made a really big deal about my birthday. And I honestly, I haven't since she passed. And I, it's like the thing I, the the way my grief still manifests is that I have a really hard time celebrating, especially if it's like about me or the kind of occasion that she used to really blow out of the water. Mm-hmm. And, and I know my kids want that. And so, you know, it's, it's an ongoing thing. This could be so off base, Kristen, and forgive me if yeah. it is, <laughs> but do you have survivor's guilt? I don't think that I do. Okay. I think it's, um, maybe I, if I had actually been diagnosed, maybe like, it, and if I, cause there is a part of it, right. Where I'm like, I, I have a brother. I, now I have a son and a daughter. I'm like living out. I can see parts of my childhood and their childhood. And I understand the things that must've happened for her raising the two of us. And so there is like, um, a certain amount of parallel that has sort of fallen into my life, even though we, I live my life very differently and have a very different looking life than she did at my age. Um, But I don't think so. I think really mine is like a more of a a constant wondering if I'm disappointing her or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. I make these choices like big choices, like I'm divorced. And sometimes I think, I wonder if she'd be so disappointed in me that I didn't like make that work. And that's, I'm like air quoting, you know what I mean? Right. And And I know now in hindsight that like part of the reason I couldn't make it work was because I didn't do the work to make myself okay. There was no way I was going to be in a relationship that was okay because I was such a mess. Okay. So let's, that's beautiful. So let's talk about making yourself okay. Because I, I, I think 100% it's, it's very hard to be in a relationship, a working relationship when you're not meeting your own needs. Right. And, and there's that whole thing of like, you can't love yourself. If you can't love yourself, how are you going to love anybody else? Right. So that's what you're talking about. Yeah, totally. Okay, great. So I think something that happened for you with your with your mastectomy is um, really coming to to find yourself and love yourself, and that I think that has been a big part of your healing process. Correct me if I'm wrong, but tell me a little bit about that experience of finding yourself through this surgery. Yeah, it was a really I think a reason that I'm so driven to like serve this community of women now is because I came out of this experience so changed and almost for the better, you know, you go into this being scared about, of course, surgery and the risks and complications that can come from that and having to face your own mortality in a way that's very different from how many people face it. And so I had all of those same typical things that were happening to me, but it was also the first time that I had to publicly admit I couldn't do everything myself. Mm. And I think that was what I had been cultivating for years after her death was like, I got this. I'm fine. I can do this. I can travel. I can have kids. I can be married. I can have a job. I can, I can do everything. And then there was this circumstance that I was willingly putting myself in where I couldn't do everything. And I had months of help and it was really humbling to be like, I can't wash my hair. Can you come over and wash my hair or, you know, needing help carrying groceries or even, I mean, people went above and beyond there. One of my aunts came and I was taking a nap and I woke up and like my whole apartment was completely spotless. I don't know what she cleaned the floors with, but like, I would have eaten off of them. <laughs> and in, in the middle of the night, when my then two-year-old daughter would cry, my landlord would come downstairs and get her out of her crib and hold her while I like kind of gently held her because I couldn't lift her up and would like sing her back to sleep. Like people did things that were unspeakably kind in the middle of the night at all kinds of times that were inconvenient. And I had so much time as a person recovering to sit and reflect on what that meant and how willing people were to help me and to 
and to do all kinds of things for me. Even at the, if I gently suggested that I needed something, people were like, how can I help you? What can I do? Do you need food? Do you need this? Even people who would just come over and make me laugh and help me find the humor in the really kind of gruesome process of having a mastectomy and reconstruction because it's kind of gross and your body looks weird. And, you know, I had thankfully people who made me find that process joyful and kind of funny. And I think that experience of having people not be disappointed by my inability to do everything, but to sort of be like, we're here to help you was, was life changing for me. I, learned a lot about myself during that time and I think I have to kind of go back and think about it a lot right were you already divorced when you had decided to do the mastectomy um my ex and I separated right around the time that I found the lump so we'd been separated about a year when I had the surgery. Okay. But we hadn't told people. Okay. Um, but you were already you, this, but you were already sort of seeing that there was work you needed to do on yourself before this surgery happened. Oh, totally. Got it. And yes. then, and then it helped you. I, what, what you're talking about is very much the experience of, of a lot of my guests and, and was my experience with illness, even though it wasn't cancer-related. Um, this experience of being having so much time with yourself, of being humbled, of learning about self-worth, whether uh, even though you feel like all of your worth had been attached to doing all your life and now you're learning about self-worth just because you are, you're learning how to get help, you're learning how to love yourself, you're talking about all of these beautiful, beautiful things and I just want to hear more about like sort of the the revelation, how you came to love yourself in this new body and um, as a person who wasn't doing it all. Yeah, I think (laughs) that's also an ongoing struggle. You know, I did know that I had a lot of work to do. My marriage fell apart and not because we didn't love each other or want the best for each other. I think um, in my process of not pausing to grieve, Brendan, my ex-husband, he was making a lot of compromises and I was... um, just plowing through life and scheduling things and doing things. And we were never really checking in. And I kept thinking like it was okay because all of this stuff was just in my head, not realizing like what a huge effect my mood and grief had on us. And I think, you know, everything's clear when you look back on it. Um, the frustration and all the things that, that happen when a relationship falls apart, especially when there are little kids you can, I could at least find this nugget of truth in myself that it was, I had to move past where I was, where I always felt like I was completely capable and completely right. Like capital R right. Like I knew (laughs) what I was doing and the best way to do it all the time. And the awesome thing about not being able to do very much is people come in and they do all this stuff that you normally do and they do it differently than you did. And it's still okay. And seeing that day after day after day was like, Oh, right. I am not actually capital R right. I just have a way that I prefer things are done. And if it's not done my way, it's still okay. And that has allowed me to be like a more collaborative human where I am better at work. I'm, I have better friendships. I can live with people more easily. I can find humor when things feel annoying instead of immediately getting frustrated. And those were all things that I couldn't do before. Mm. And the physical thing was like, I luckily have had a really healthy life and was always pretty much able to do whatever I wanted or needed to do other than chin-ups, which I could never master and now (laughs) will never master. But, you know, I've had to apply this sort of understanding about myself to a new physical understanding about myself and being like, okay, well, this isn't really what I want my body to look like or what I want it to feel like. And I wish it were stronger. And there's all these things that, um, I didn't appreciate before about what my body could 
do. And while I can rationalize that the decision to not get breast cancer is 100% worth the physical discomfort or the weird feelings I have about my body, they're hard to shake. You know, for me, the process of like gaining and losing weight with pregnancy or, you know, there's all these things that happen to your body over time as you age and whatever. But this process was very, really acute. And it, because of that speed, like you wake up in a new body and it's hard to get used to that. So immediately, like we don't wake up 15 pounds heavier or 15 pounds lighter or having aged 20 years or having gray hair from, you know, it just, it, it's all usually gradual. And so it's such a having trauma. a new, yeah, having a new body four times now has been really weird. Wow. And sometimes I'll put on clothes and be like, I used to love this dress and I no longer love it. And getting rid of that stuff, like getting rid of stuff that makes me feel bad has been really freeing. Um, where it's like, this is the dress I wore to this thing that I used to feel like a million bucks in. And now it won't zipper over my big fake boobs. So get rid of it. <laughs> like, I don't want, I don't need a reminder of that all the time. Like there are new, there's always new stuff. Right. Um, but it is, it's constant. I, I'm still not used to this body. And I, my closest friends and people who I've been intimate with, sometimes they forget you know, like they just see me as me and I'm seeing myself in like all of the different parts of me that, that I either like dislike or let's say like a varying level of of dislike. And so I don't have a great answer to your question. I don't know that I'm fully there yet in terms no. of being like, this is my body and I accept it. I wish and someday I hope that I can like straight face say that to a bunch of people, but I still struggle with that. Yeah, but I think so much of the acceptance is in that that factual statement you just gave for yourself, right? Like, I still struggle with it. I'm working on it. I don't know that we that we ever get there. And I've had a lot of guests where like, yeah, they wake up with completely new bodies. And that is such a trauma. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, from we did, you listened to the other episode we did on the double mastectomy. And, and she, Amy Marks, she said the same thing, right? Like, I still don't love my breasts. <laughs> She's like, I still miss my old breasts. Um, yeah. and that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. And so tell me a little bit about Brilliantly, your company, because I think that's, this is sort of what Brilliantly was born out of. Yeah. You know, I had my surgery pre Angelina Jolie, so it was, um, a difficult moment in time for people like culturally to understand what I was doing. Um, and there was a lot of misperception about like, oh, it's a free boob job. And it's like, whoa, no, it would look so much better <laughs> if that were the case. Right. Um, and be so much less expensive, too. But I think um, I had a hard time finding people to connect with so I could um, be prepared. And the women who I spoke with were all at least a decade older than me, all had had cancer and gave really helpful tips on things to do to prepare for surgery, like you're going to need this kind of pillow or you're going to need button down shirts or what, you know, whatever it is. Um, but there wasn't anybody who I felt like I could talk to about making this decision and what the implications were for my life as a young woman making this choice. And so for years, I just sort of mucked through my experience where I was like, Oh, well I'm having this side effect or I feel weird, like especially weird about my body or I have really bizarre animation deformity. Like when I use my chest muscles, my implants are in a pocket in my chest muscles. So like when I do things that use those muscles, the implants squish around in this really weird visible way. And, you know, I like, I don't know, is that normal? I've never seen anybody else do that, but I also don't know anybody else who's done this. And so it, it was years before I started to join online communities or actively look for women who'd been through this process. So I could say like, does this happen to you too? What about what bathing suits do you wear? How do you feel during sex? Like things that you, like, I'm not going to go ask my plastic surgeon. <laughs> wasn't, I didn't feel like there was a resource thing. And the thing that especially plagued me as a, like kind of a long-term physical comfort issue, because there's so many um, 
sensations and feelings that you go through during this healing journey where you have nerve pain or muscle spasms or, you know, pick a thing. And then you have to settle back into this new body and figure out how does it work and how can I live my life in it. And I'm freezing cold. So for me, the implants, which aren't insulated by any fatty tissue, they have nothing that's sort of keeping them at body temperature. They're not only cold to the touch, but they're heat sink. They're just pulling heat from my core. And I'm cold all the time. And it's really changed how I live my life and the kinds of things that I'll do or activities that I'll do with the kids. And brilliantly was born out of me trying to make a something for myself to wear to stay warm. And then as I was talking to other women to find out if it was a problem for them too, I realized that there was an entire space that exists when you're done with your medical journey and you need to get back into being yourself, whether that's like being a mom, being in the workforce, being a wife, dating, like whatever it is that you do in your daily life as, as like your unique individual person that you want to go and like kick ass. What do you, who's there to help you do that again because you don't get to go back right and you know this it's true of like it's not exclusive to cancer or preventative measures it's kind of any life experience you don't get to go back to who you were you don't get to say like oh this is why my marriage fell apart let me go back and fix it or this is why um you know i felt this way at that time so how can how can i help women who've been through this go forth and just prosper in a way where you're not defined by a color or a sticker on your car, but you just get to be you, but you get to have a place where you can go and say, I need to talk to somebody about X, or I'm looking for a solution to this problem, or I didn't ever go to physical therapy and I cannot lift my arms above my head. Are there some corrective exercises that I can do and really kind of curate a space of products and services and people and resources where women can go to find each other and find what they need to go be awesome. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're making some traction and making some headway and things are going to be happening quite a bit more as we get into 2019, but I'm really excited about it. It feels like a way for me to give back after my mom died. I had kind of a crisis of conscience. i my background is all working in a museum in the curatorial department. Um, and I felt like I believe in art as, as a really big culturally defining important thing, but I didn't feel like it was the way for me to give back. And I struggled with that for years. Like, how can I be someone who's also, you know, should I be a doctor? Should I be a nurse? Should I go back to school? What can I do? And this Building brilliantly is the first thing that I've done that feels like it pays tribute to my own experience and my mother's life and like what I want to stand for as a as a supportive person who believes in helping people improve their life. And, you know, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that someone if I can help one woman feel better then I've. I feel good about that. Yeah, absolutely. I hear you talking about a few things. One thing that I heard in what you said, it's so true that we don't go back, you know? And when I got when I got sick, that was I spent the first, I don't know, 2 years of being sick just waiting to go back to my life. <laughs> right, you know, like right. I just I just want to go back to how it was. And um people kept saying like that doesn't that doesn't happen. And I kept being in denial about that because I was so afraid. And, um, you know, after I had gotten well, I read Option B by Sheryl Sandberg. Have you read that book? I haven't, but I can add it to my list. It's it's really great. And she talks about this, this great um, – she talks about bouncing forward. So she's like, there's no bouncing back. You don't bounce back. You, you What you want to do in life is bounce forward. <laughs> Right. And that's what that's what I heard you talking about and you're giving women uh you know a, a safe space to be able to bounce forward. That's what I hear you doing. Yeah, totally. That's such an important phrase too. I love that she put that out there. There's a lot of phrases that we use as a society that are about looking back or getting back to yourself. They're all back. Like we can't 
it just doesn't serve anybody well. And even if you don't really deeply analyze what the words mean, there's still that connotation where you're like, oh, I can't do that. And maybe you can't put your finger on why you can't do it, but that's such a good bounce forward. I love it. Yeah, it's really great. So let's take a quick break for the weekly challenge. Welcome to our weekly challenge segment where we arm you with new tools each week to kick some self-care butt. As you explore all of these new options presented weekly, my hope is that you will come to collect a number of quick ways to take care of yourself inside and out. You will essentially have your very own and very handy self-care toolkit. Some of the challenges may not work for you and some will seem perfectly tailored to you. We are building up your defenses, inspiring your mind, body, and spirit toward total wellness. Keep in mind that the goal is always progress, not perfection. The only rule is that you are never allowed to beat yourself up. Keep me posted on your progress. Stay accountable. It helps. Okay, let's hit this week's challenge. Okay, Kristen, tell us what the challenge is this week. Yeah, so my thing, I think, is to challenge your listeners to every day upon waking to think of five things that you're doing really well. And I am at a moment in my life where I had to evacuate the apartment I was living in because it was completely full of toxic mold. And I'm living in an efficiency apartment with my two kids without any of our stuff. And I'm trying to build a business and it's just about to be Christmas. And so I'm in this like light state of panic every day (laughs) where even when things are going well, I have this little black cloud that's like, you have to, you have to deal with all the mold stuff. You have to call the insurance. There's all these things. And when I'm focused on any one of them, I've started to feel like I'm failing at another one. And really in the last probably week or so, when I wake up, I don't jump out of bed to go like make the lunches and make my coffee. I try to think about like, what am I doing well already? Like, okay. And so I think it has helped me set the tone for my day where I don't wake up and immediately just start doing things. It's not about, I'm trying, I'm not suggesting that people like have to set an intention for their day, but just remember in the chaos of the day to day, the rushing around, that you're doing a lot of things really well. And even if a few during the day are terrible or don't go well, it's probably a much smaller number that aren't going well than are. And so focusing on those positive things is at least helping me get through this particular moment in time. So I think it's hopefully useful for your listeners as well. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I think we spend so much time, especially... Maybe not especially, but it feels like women are really, really hard on themselves and expect expect a lot from ourselves, from being the best kind of partner and mother and considerate of all those around us. And we just consider everyone and everything. And then we want to like make waves in the workforce, right? So I think there's a lot of ways throughout the day that I have opportunities to beat myself up and starting the day with immediately upon awakening what are what are things that you know are quote unquote right about me or what are things that I am doing you know um that I'm proud of or that and and they don't even need to be like I kind of like that you said don't get up and do something right like it's not about doing something It's just about like, did I smile at a stranger recently, right? Or, you know, do I, do I take my kids to school or make sure they get there on time? Like, it seems like it can be so little. Tell me what's, would you mind telling me what some of the things end up going on your list are? Sure. So like just this morning, um, my kids woke up and they both came and like laid on either side of me. And I was like, oh, this is a big thing that I'm doing right. Like that they wake up and their first thought is like that they want to come hug me means that that is one big, huge thing I'm doing right, even though I'll probably yell at them at some point in the next <laughs> 24 hours. And, you know, I opened my eyes and I looked at the foot of the bed and was like, oh, I didn't fold any of that laundry before I fell asleep last night. And then I was like, no, stop. Like there's the stuff is going to get done. Like, and I reminded myself that I'm only capable of so much. 
and that it's all going to get done in due time. Like it doesn't really matter Mm. in that moment. Like I don't have to potentially make us late for school or be frazzled to get that laundry folded because it doesn't really matter if between seven and eight, the laundry is folded. You know, it's, it's been little things. And sometimes it's about the not doing for Mm -hmm. me where I'm like, I'm not going to do that because it's going to, it's going to make me rushed or it doesn't really matter. It's not the priority right now. Um, and the other thing, you know, sometimes it's like forgiving myself for something like last night, I sent an email that maybe I should have slept on before I hit hmm. send. And I was like, well, you sent it. It's going to be okay. You can talk through it with that person later and yeah. not being mad at myself for things that maybe weren't the most thoughtful Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you really had a journey of like strict perfectionism into like allowing your humanity and imperfectionism. (laughs) Yeah. I think people like me more now too, if I can be so bold. (laughs) You know, my um, former sister-in-law, who is still a very good friend, used to joke that she would bring her toothbrush over so she could clean my baseboards with it anytime she was staying with me. And I really like I think about that sometimes and I'm like, oh, right. Like I was nonstop making everything perfect. And she would see the behind the scenes of it because she was family. You know, like most people didn't ever witness me like scrubbing anything with a toothbrush, but she had. (laughs) And and I think like, you know, sometimes I joke to her now about it. Like like this is a non I haven't cleaned the baseboards like in this rental ever. So can we high five about it? You know, right. I think, yeah, I'm I'm a little more human. Right. And I think it it's making everybody happier, including myself. Yeah. That happened to me in a really big way with illness. Like I was I was actually mess much messier before illness than I am now. I've become a lot more type A about my space. But but in terms of just like allowing humanity, right? Allowing sadness, allowing grief, allowing lots of imperfection, allowing mistakes, allowing, you know, myself to sleep. Like I have this thing lately where I really think, um, I just really think that I should be awake at 6 a.m. every day. And I don't have kids, so I'm sure you are awake at 6 a.m. every day. But for me, you know, I have this thing where it's like I should be awake at 6 a.m. every day and I should work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And there should be like no time in between and no resting and there should be lots of exercise involved. And like (laughs) if I was the person I wanted to be, I would be able to do that Monday through Sunday. (laughs) And – that doesn't sound fun. Right. And like I have not been able to do that, right, at all. Um, and it's like this letting go of, yeah, so sleep sleep a couple hours more or, you know, or or take take that 10-minute break right now and just like really enjoy it or, or like fuck off one day, you know, like right. just don't do anything. What if I didn't do anything today? And just really learning to accept myself and and love myself with um, radically love myself with all this humanness. You know, uh, illness really gave that to me. Yeah, I think for me, so much of my behaviors were about control. And I, you know, to like circle back to your question about grief. I felt so out of control and unable to do anything around my mom's illness that um, the, I grasped onto all of these things that I could have control over. And like, you know, some for some people that's like manifest in what they eat or if their space is super clean or like, you know, you can apply that control to anything. And I like blanketed my life with that where I was like, I'm going to just anything that I have control over, I'm going to hold on to with a death grip. And, and I, I don't know that my personality on its own is type A, but it became that way where everything had to be perfect because I could control it until it got to what like I saw as perfection. And, and my letting go is much like you described where it's like, okay, well, these things aren't ever really going to be perfect and nor does it matter. Mm-hmm. Right. So were you happier? That, were you happier scrubbing right, the baseboards? <laughs> no. I mean, like there is a part of me that just loves a really clean floor, but 
I like going to the beach more than I like seeing the clean floor. Mm. And even like the sand on the floor from the beach for a little bit is okay too. Like that is just evidence that we had a really good time that day. And I think I letting go of that. I love that you said that you were like for a little bit, for a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like I don't want to step in sand every morning. No, no. I do if I'm at the beach, but not in my kitchen. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, there's, it creeps in every once in a while in funny different ways, but I recognize it now for what it is. And it's not really, you know, before any adult comes into my space, I run around like a crazy person and like clean things up. And then I'm like sort of thankful for that prompt that I had to clean up after myself. But I, you know, it, it really, I enjoy my life so much more now. Yeah. Right. I know. And control that level of control. I really relate to, um, and it's just a trauma response, right? It's just a a trauma response and we're trying to control and we have no control and life is so much more fun and effective and productive when we let go, which is so funny because it seems like the opposite would be true, but it, it's just not. No, it's not. Like nobody wants to be married to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to be married to that. And it was me. You know, there's all of these things that I recognize where I was like, I'm not like, I'm not capable of, I can only treat anyone else as well as I'm treating myself. And I was treating myself like such utter shit that Mm. I couldn't, I was definitely not being a good friend or a good spouse or a great parent. And I think the thing I always tried the hardest at was to be a really good parent and and so mostly, I think my children were spared, or at least they were little enough that we could undo some of those things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it I do feel like I have better and deeper and more meaningful friendships and connections with people. Um, and while I'm obviously still struggling with what I look like and what are the long-term effects of deciding to avoid an illness, but taking on a physical, a, a taxing physical experience it's, it's going to be the rest of my life. Like that's part of what my life is now, but it, it, you know, it feels, it feels worth learning that lesson. Um, of course I would love to be able to have known this as an early twenties person and had an easier time, but that's just not how it goes. No, I know. I wish I didn't have to learn my lessons through like almost dying. You know, I wish, I wish I didn't have to learn my lessons through three years in bed, like 100%. But I'm also so grateful for the lessons and it has radically changed my life for the better. And you talked about that before, like changing it for the better. I remember when I was still sick and I was, I was, I'm an actress, so I was in a makeup chair and I had told the makeup artist could tell that I was sick from my skin and I looked, I looked pretty sick and, um, And I was like, yeah, my whole life, you know, my whole life has changed. And the girl sitting next to me just looked at me and said, for the better, you mean? And, (laughs) and I had never, I hadn't heard that yet. I had been sick a couple of years and I was like, oh, that's an option. Like, it's an option for me to say that my life has changed for the better at some point. Um, And it really is. Yeah, totally. That's such a valuable thing for someone to say. And that's really part of the mission of Brilliantly is to give women permission to own their story and then reframe it. Mm -hmm. You can you can decide that you're a victim. You can decide that you're someone who's going to thrive. You get to make that choice. Yes, you don't get to choose your hereditary risk. You don't get to choose if you get cancer. You don't get a choice in so many things, but you do get to choose what is the story you tell yourself about what happened to you? And what is the story that you're going to tell the world about yourself? And you can leave cancer out of it. Absolutely. You can just talk about who you are and what you do and why you're awesome. And I think, like, I want to be the woman in the next makeup chair for so many women. Right. Like, you're, you're okay. You're going to be great. Ah, so beautiful. And last question based on brilliantly, have you found a way to make something warm for yourself? <laughs> I have. Yeah. We're in the middle of creating a device that is, um, it's a heated bra insert. Whoa. I think, you know, all ladies who wear bras know, or bathing suits know, like fit is a big issue. And I think um, it's 
maybe an even bigger issue for this community. Reconstructed breasts, you don't get to like wiggle your breast implants into a bra that doesn't fit properly. Like you can like with natural, wonderful, squishy boobs, you can just kind of like shimmy them in. Um, so if women who are, have implant reconstruction find a bra that fits and have this issue of coldness, I want to give them a high five and then give them access to this really discreet, very comfortable, um, temperature regulated, safe insert that will help them feel warm and, and really be less distracted and have to think less about their breasts and their chest and their, and being uncomfortable because when you're more comfortable, you can be more present. And it really, um, you know, speaks to the mission to be able to, to be more comfortable in your skin and, and to not be like, oh, I, I'm going to be in the, this meeting and I'm going to need to wear my puffy vest, even though it's kind of embarrassing. Or, mm, so That is so awesome. I'm so excited thanks. for that to hit. And I'm so excited that you created a, a, a look, I hate being cold and I have such a thing about being cold and I'm cold all the time. <laughs> so the, the, I'm excited for people to get relief yeah, I'll from totally, that. I'll send you one. You <laughs> can check it out. I think it is really, I think when, there are people who are chronically cold for so many reasons. I think there's an opportunity or I think women who are going to like elect, you know, if you wear a bra, it's basically a pocket. I don't know if you did that. Like in college, I would put my key in there. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Of 20 in there. I was like ready to go. Um, so I think if you're somebody who's cold all the time, it might be something that just keeps you more comfortable too. So yeah. I just love it. That's Thanks. so cool. Congrats. Tell people where they can find you. Yeah, you can follow me. I started an Instagram where people could kind of follow the behind the scenes journey of me trying to start this company. Um, and that's Kristen underscore brilliantly on Instagram. And if you are a woman who has... Um, any connection to breast cancer whatsoever, um, our website is brilliantly.co, and it's pretty minimal and bare bones, but we'll be beefing it up over the next few months ahead of product launch. And, you know, if you sign up for the mailing list, I promise not to bombard you with nonsense. It's just going to be giving you information quickly about the products and services that we're unrolling. So Woo-hoo. that's where you can find me. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, cool. Kristen, thank you so much for coming on. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, I knew I'd feel all inspired and awesome at the end of this. And I do. So thank you for the chat. Um, Thank you. Everyone. Enjoy that weekly challenge saying five positive things about yourself upon awakening. Follow me on Instagram at Jackie for some updates on my journey with the weekly challenge. And I will see all of you soon. Thank you so much for listening to Healing Out Loud. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Find me at Jackie on Instagram, my favorite social media platform, and follow me at JackieShay.com if you want to stay in touch. You can also write to me through JackieShay.com if you're interested in working with me as your trusted wellness companion. I'm always happy to hear from you with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can also join the Healing Out Loud with Jackie Shea Facebook group. Have an amazing week, you kick-ass humans. I hope you're able to implement what you learned this week, and I can't wait to share more. Bye.